2: Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace, and success. I'm Ashley Milntite. This time, the coaching industry has exploded in recent years and it's dominated by women.
3: Women in our corporations are dealing with a lot of bias, so they seek out help to. Acknowledge what they're experiencing, whether it's I got fired on maternity leave or I'm being overlooked for this promotion.
2: And as anyone who sought out a coach knows, their services are an investment.
4: I never really thought about hiring an executive coach. I've met executive coaches, but it always appeared to me that they were very, very expensive. And I kind of had excluded myself mentally from being the kind of person who would enlist an executive coach myself. But
2: what value do we place on improving our lives in and out of work?
1: Sometimes when people are sceptical of price, there's always this thing to me of like, well, what's the value of spending an hour or more a week with a person whose sole focus it is is on you and what you want from your life? That's not nothing.
2: Today, the first of two shows looking at women and the coaching industry. A few years ago, when I was still in the habit of blogging regularly, I wrote a post called Everyone's a Coach because that's how it felt to me. Ever since I'd started doing the show in 2012 and spending all this time plugged into the world of women in the workplace, i noticed just how many social media profiles of women there were saying they were a coach, very often specialising in helping women realise their full potential. Now, I have nothing against helping women realise their potential, obviously. But as the months and years went by, I was struck by the sheer numbers of women I was meeting in person or online who introduced themselves with the title coach. I thought, how can all these women be coaches? Is there enough demand for their services? And if so, why? I'll also admit that some of the relentless positivity of those profiles, as well as the pitches I was getting from coaches, it just didn't sit right with me. It seemed too woo-woo for this cynical Brit. It was hard for me to buy into a lot of that personal growth industry lingo. That said, I am someone who believes in paying for help or advice if I need it. I don't think I can solve all my own problems or issues – I do believe it's helpful to have a total outsider's point of view. The coaching industry is growing fast all around the world. The International Coach Federation estimates coaching brought in more than $2 billion in global revenue in 2015. That's the last year for which figures are available. That was up almost 20% from a few years earlier. The industry is unregulated. And anyone can call themselves a coach, regardless of whether they've done any training or not. ICF defines coaching as the process of partnering with clients to help them maximise their personal and professional potential. And who wouldn't want to do that? Women, it turns out, are especially keen. We are the majority of coaches and the majority of clients. Many of us are paying out of our own pockets for a coach's services, and coaching does not come cheap. But being a coach isn't necessarily easy either. It can be incredibly rewarding work, but doing it for a living means developing serious sales skills and having a lot of happy clients to recommend your services. I know from asking about this on the Facebook page that some of you have hired coaches and benefited tremendously from the relationship. Meanwhile, others are wary. There's a lot to discuss, so I'm breaking this topic into two shows. In this first show, we're going to focus on a couple of women who do coaching work, one part-time, one full-time. We are going to meet a trainer of coaches, and I'm going to ask everyone rude questions about money. Kate Shutt is a musician by training and by trade, and for the last several years, she's also been a coach. She was a serious athlete in college, so the whole concept of having a coach to help you do better, it's something she's very familiar with. She lives in New York City, now, Kate isn't a business coach or an executive coach. She's not focusing exclusively on a client's performance at
1: work. I mean, the easiest explanation is a life coach, but I've, I've kind of narrowed it a little bit to saying I'm a change coach. And what does that mean? I help people who are at a transition point in their life figure out what comes next. Or, and In fact, I'd like to change that wording. I like, the, like to help them create. What comes next?
2: About 10 years ago, Kate stumbled across the term life coach online. She hadn't heard it before, but it resonated with her.
1: That really made sense to me because I had had spent most of my life being coached, and I knew the difference between a good coach and a bad coach. Everybody does. And, you know, I, as I started to explore it for myself, it became something that I thought, hmm, this... I think I'd like to try this with other people.
2: And now when you, you just, you said something there, you said, you know, everyone knows the difference between a good and a bad coach, but I disagree. I don't think everyone does, specific, particularly when they have never used a coach and are a little bit fuzzy about what a coach does. So you, tell me about that.
1: Good catch. That, that's, that's, of course, I'm I'm thinking from my own perspective. That's, I projected that. Um what is the difference between a good, good and a bad coach? Uh, challenge you. Challenge you to think differently about how you're showing up in the world. Challenge you to take action. I think that would probably be the biggest thing is taking action uh, in your life towards the goals or things that you say you want.
2: In 2010, Kate was at a crossroads, struggling as a musician and feeling she was working like crazy but not seeing any progress. She says she needed someone to give her an outsider's perspective and some guidance on how to think about what she was trying to do. She found a coach who turned out to be great for her. She says he helped her step back from all the negative thoughts and self-hatred she often had about not being where she thought she should be in her music career her fears about not being a devoted-enough musician. He encouraged her to see herself in a different light. And as she kept working with him, she began to think, I'm getting so much out of this. How do I become the same kind of coach? She felt she was cut out for the work.
1: I had had always been, and still am to a large extent, the person in in my world who people come to for advice about aspects of their life, their career. I mean, my I, I'd like to think I have a very level head and I have a I've done a lot of seeking in my life. I've had a lot of experiences. I've um, tested myself in many ways. I and so I bring everything to the table.
2: When Kate started her coaching practice, she worked mostly with women clients,
1: which is typical for a lot of coaches. And then through my conversations with people, and I guess just doing it for longer, I've had more men come on board, which is, I love it. It's very challenging. It's different. I find it very different. How? The questions, to me, this is going to be a blanket statement, (laughs) which we'll probably get some comments about, but women seem to be able to answer more readily the tough questions or the challenging questions or the questions that are like, maybe I asked them to take an action or something and they, they didn't do it or, some, or something like that. And I say, you know, what scared you about that? Sometimes women seem to be able to answer that question or at least be willing to try and work with me through that. And, as, and usually the men I work with, it's a, it takes a little longer. To get there and I'm patient we'll get there but I don't think they're as good as off the cuff seeing themselves is this a, is this a terribly <laughs> a gendered response that I'm gonna wish I never said I don't think we're going to be shouted out of town.
2: I hope not. Um, but but that it, yeah, that speaks to the sort of idea of self-reflection and self-examination. And I do think on the whole, and I'm just going to say that on the whole, women spend more time in their heads, looking at themselves and their lives than men do. It's interesting when you look at the statistics collected by ICF, the International Coach Federation, Their last survey showed almost 70% of life coaching clients are women. So after imploring her coach to get her started on the road to becoming a coach herself, he began giving Kate books to read and more books, all of which she devoured.
1: Finally, after that, when he could see I was so eager, he just said, you should go take the Creativity Coaching Association's courses. I said, okay, great. What's that? So I Googled it, looked good. I signed up for the courses. I started taking them. Um, And to be honest, I never finished. I took all the courses you could take. And the only thing I had to hand in to get my piece of paper from the Creativity Coaching Association was a book report on a number of books. Now, I read anywhere between 80 to over 100 books a year. And um, for some reason or other, I just... I just didn't – I couldn't make myself do that book report. Um, So I actually never got a certificate from the Creativity Coaching Association. But I think that um, to me, it doesn't really have to do with a piece of paper. It really has to do with the person's – the coach's outlook on life and how they view the world and how they – propose to get you to where you it is you say you want to go and are they doing it in their own life is their own life a reflection of that
2: which to be fair may be a little bit hard for a prospective client to work out not all clients will ask those kinds of questions some may feel they need help now and just plunge into the relationship Talking of plunging in, coaching is a one-on-one engagement, and as such, it tends to be quite pricey for an individual. Kate doesn't coach full-time. She's still busy as a singer-songwriter, and clients usually need to pay at least a few thousand dollars to get started working with her. Kate says this whole business of rates and how much to charge can certainly be fraught, but she thinks most independent professionals, including her when she started her coaching practice, undervalue themselves and the work they do.
1: I'd say that our culture has this fantasy that everything everybody needs to should do everything on their own. And that, you know, advice isn't something you should necessarily pay for. And that that there's this element, I guess, when sometimes when people are skeptical of price, or that's shocking to them, or whatever it is to them. There's always this thing to me of like, well, what, What's the value of spending an hour or more a week with a person whose sole focus it is is on you and what you want from your life? That's not nothing. Plus,
2: she says, think about how many different types of professionals have coaches to help them perform at their peak.
1: Coaches have always existed, you know, in some form. Like, what... You would never become an Olympian without a coach. You would never become a great, you know, violinist or the greatest musicians we love. They have coaches. They just don't call they aren't called coaches. They're called teachers, but that's a coach. If you want to be better at being yourself and doing your life, it costs something. <laughs>
2: Rachel Garrett is a women's leadership coach, also based in New York City. She worked in the corporate world for 15 years. Unlike Kate, she was the person friends and colleagues turned to, especially for career advice. Unlike Kate, Rachel does coaching full time. It's her bread and butter. She and I met up in Brooklyn recently. When you left your company, like what level were you at? What was your title?
3: Uh, Yeah, I was the director of digital marketing. So, um, you know, the director level for me was it worked well. Um, and yet I, you know, I, I had two small children at the time. Um, and so I saw that, you know, some of the folks who were more senior were having a hard time juggling their parenting and um, and their career. And so that was one of the challenges, and that's one of the challenges that my clients face is that when they get to the destination of the more senior roles, they're really struggling to put the time in with their families. And that's been the most exciting work that I'm doing with my clients is let's change the destination. Let's show um, how you can create different boundaries, how you can prioritize your family. And it's not just about you and your family, it's modeling it for the other women who are coming up in your organization as well.
2: It is a little bit ironic that you were a senior woman in corporate, but, and you're now coaching women to try and help them to get to that position. But you you left your position to do that, so you're one less senior woman in corporate now.
3: It's true, and you know that's something that I think about a lot with my clients. It really needs to—you need to find what works for you. So I knew that building a business was something that I had always wanted to do. Um, whereas a lot of my clients are really thrilled to be part of an organization; they really want to build that structure, and so. What we do is figure out what's important to you and what does success look like.
2: One of the questions I've been pondering over the last few years is why so many women are interested in hiring a coach. The majority of coaching clients all over the world are female, according to the International Coach Federation, except in Asia. I'm guessing part of it is that women are perhaps more apt than men to ask for help with their lives and careers when they feel they need it. Rachel thinks it's more than that.
3: What I realize about my clients is that they are the supports for everyone else in their life. And that's what we do as women. And they don't have a lot of support in their lives for themselves. The mentors that they might go to are so busy themselves and friends all have busy lives. Many of my clients are not only mothers, but they're also caring for a sick or elderly mother or father. And they just sit with me and we talk about, here's some permission to just relax for a minute. You don't have to do it all. And here's permission to do it your way.
2: She says so many of the women she works with are stressed, guilty. They feel they can't say no to things at work and at home. Plus, she says...
3: Women in our corporations are dealing with a lot of bias that men are not dealing with, and so they seek out help to, you know, acknowledge what they're experiencing. Whether it's I got fired on maternity leave, or I, <laughs> um, or I'm being overlooked for this promotion, and to really just get a reality check. And then support to help them through those situations. So, you know, my take on part of the reason why women are reaching out for help more often is because they're dealing with the imbalance in the the institutions we're in.
2: But what about career prospects for the coach herself? Because the more social media profiles I see of female coaches, the more websites I look at, and the more pitches I get in my inbox from coaches... The more I wonder, how can all these coaches find enough work? It can feel like there's a coach for every woman in America. A few years ago, I interviewed Terry Maltbeer for a radio story. He directs the Columbia Coaching Certification Program at Columbia University's Teachers College in New York. This is a prestigious coach training program at an Ivy League university. It's always oversubscribed. I caught up with Terry again on the phone recently, but when we met, he agreed. The market for coaches is ever more crowded.
5: If you talk to coaches, their experience increased competition. And their experience increased competition, Not so the supply and demand is a little tricky. So it is true that the demand for coaching is increasing compared to, like, say, when I entered this field in 2006, However, the, the supply of coaches, both trained and untrained, is actually higher than that.
2: And it keeps growing. In the last five years, membership of the International Coach Federation has shot up by a third. And that's just coaches who have a certain amount of formal training and certifications. The number of coaches out there is something to bear in mind for anyone considering going into coaching. How will you distinguish yourself and make a living with so much competition?
5: I can't tell you how many people in our first few cohorts were successful people in an organizational environment, often corporate, who, for whatever reason, decided they wanted to be a coach. And many left their day job in the course of this process, which was alarming to me because they had thought through the passion part of coaching. What they hadn't thought through is the business side of, of coaching. And I think that's There are three factors that I think contribute to a sustainable business in coaching. One is developing coaching capabilities. So going somewhere and understanding what coaching is, what skills you need, having a clear process, having a clear set of ethical standards, all those kinds of things, right? It's preparing self as instrument to be a coach. Most people who enter coaching or a number of people who enter coaching now, I think, do that. The other side is getting really clear about the economics for you. Not only individual fees, but, um, you know, are you going to do only individual coaching work? How might you scale that? If you're leaving a corporate job at the sort of vice president level where you're making, you know, a six-figure salary, to make that up in coaching with individual sessions is something that requires some thought.
2: Now, this is something Rachel Garrett did think through before she started coaching a few years ago, and she has now matched her corporate paycheck.
3: I was lucky enough to have the marketing skills to get up and running fairly quickly. So I think that was a skill set that was really important to setting up an infrastructure, like a website and a brand. Uh, And so, you know, Of course, in my first year, I was not making the same money, but I'm able to make the same money now. And there's potential for me to make a lot more than I was making as a digital marketer in corporate.
2: That's because she doesn't just stick to individual clients. Rachel also works with coaching companies, and she's drafted in by corporations to teach workshops in-house. She loves the variety of it
3: you know, I'm able to take on different kinds of projects and scale up and in a different way. I'm in charge. And that's the most important part to me, I get to choose the kinds of clients, the the kind of projects. And, you know, there's no one that I need to ask about, you know, what to do next. And I think I, I was hungry for that while I was in corporate.
2: Rachel's articulating something a lot of other women love about going into coaching or any other solo business flexibility. Not only the ability to pick clients, but the ability to build a business around their and their families' lives. She loves that she can be a chaperone on her daughter's school trips without feeling guilty about taking time off work. New York is one of the most expensive cities in the world. Rachel's husband works full-time, but Rachel always wanted to do well financially while helping people at the same time. And that means charging hundreds of dollars an hour.
3: It's taken me a while to continually raise my rates. I started much lower than I should have. But I was just gaining my confidence um, that first year out. And so quickly, I'm realizing that I need to, you know, I've needed to raise my rates and I, you know, my practice is so booked that I continue to do so. So, um, you know, I always take on a couple of um, low cost pro bono clients uh, and that's just important to me. I want to choose the, the right people and, and be able to make a bigger impact. But, you know, especially with corporate clients, I'm able to make a, a very good salary
2: a lot of people listening might say, great, how nice to have a coach, but I can't pay three, four or $500 an hour for a coach. So that, that, you know, is explain from your perspective, what you do as a coach that,
3: that merits what sounds like more than a lot of therapists would charge. Yes. So for my coaching practice, I focus a lot on creating, helping people create a personal brand and finding confidence, advocating for themselves, negotiating the kinds of salaries they feel they deserve, asking for promotions, and stepping into the leaders that they want to be. So it's leading their team powerfully and rising through the ranks in their organization. That does change their lives.
2: Rachel says it's not just New Yorkers who are signing up either. She's had clients as far afield as Texas and Oklahoma. People are willing, she says, to invest in their lives. If you're lucky enough to be sponsored for coaching, you won't pay a penny.
4: So I never really thought about hiring an executive coach. I've met executive coaches at women's events and things, but it always appeared to me that they were very, very expensive. And I'd kind of had excluded myself mentally from being the kind of person who would enlist an executive coach myself.
2: That's Danielle Survey. She works in marketing at a big company based in the Midwest. She says she kind of stumbled into her career. She started out as an assistant. It was just a day job while she devoted her evenings to working in the theatre. But ultimately, she gave up the idea of being a stage director and moved up the ranks at work. Last year, she was invited to a meeting stuffed with executives, and she spotted a senior woman she really admired. Like Danielle, this woman had a bunch of kids and she worked full time.
4: I made a joke while we were heading to the restroom, you know, that, oh my goodness, there's a lot of women filling up the stalls. Usually we're feeling kind of lonely in these executive meetings. And uh, she laughed with me. And and at some point we ended up talking about how self-conscious we can feel in executive meetings, in this conversation something must have sparked in her mind because the next day she said to me you know i am thinking about starting a pilot program for women to receive some executive coaching and i think you would be a great person to to do this if you would like to and i'm making the funds available from my department so it wouldn't cost you anything or your department anything um it would be you know 7 to 10 sessions and there's a book we go through and I just said yes.
2: Next time, we find out how Danielle's coaching went and we look at the past. Coaching was a thing that your manager
3: did for you.
2: As we consider how and why coaching has become so big. That's the broad experience for this time. I will post show notes under this episode at thebroadexperience.com. You can find out more about Kate Shutt and Rachel Garrett there. You'll be hearing more from Kate on a completely different topic in an upcoming show. Thanks to Kate, Rachel and Terry Maltbier for being my guests on this show. If you enjoy the podcast, please go and write a quick review on iTunes. The podcast world is awfully crowded these days and an indie show can easily stay beneath everyone's radar. Reviews do help the show get noticed by others who might not find it otherwise. I welcome feedback. As always, you can hit me up via the website or on Twitter or post on the Facebook page. I'm Ashley Nontite. Thanks for listening. See you next time.